Hello and welcome to Twin Peaks The Return, a season three podcast. We'll start today's episode with a discussion of part 10, and then I'll share my interview with Eamon Farron, who plays Richard Horn in the show, and we'll finish off with Theory Fish. First up, I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Hayley Inch, and I'm still laughing about Anders saying, I really need this juice before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> Perked me up. It's great. I'm high um, on sugar. Yeah, so, so I can God. control myself. Um, our guest today is Anders Furs. Hi, Anders. Hi, Hayley. Thank you for having me, both of you. Most welcome. Um, would I describe you correctly as a film critic, journalist and pop culture aficionado? Uh, correct. Yes, that's Great. me. Excellent. What and you... um, I co-host a <gasps> film podcast with, with someone Mr. familiar. Andy Hazel. Yeah, we do. We, we go back. Cultural capital. We go back with our podcasting ways. And on that podcast a few episodes ago, you did say, were you allowed to include Twin Peaks The Return as a film? What would be your favourite film of the year so far? Absolutely. Favourite, well, favourite moving image work. <laughs> if you want to get super <laughs> yeah. specific about it. Is it a film? No. I mean, it, it, I, I feel like it's a pointless argument, but favourite thing that involves images and sound. Well, yeah. I think that's just the best way to talk about Twin Peaks. I don't know if it even classifies <laughs> yeah, as a true. TV show or a movie or anything in between. It's something... Itself it, And it plays around with those things in very interesting ways. Mm, I agree. Yeah, well, I mean, Lynch did start doing film because he wanted a painting that moved. He, he did, as he told us all up in Brisbane a couple of years ago at the launch of the David Lynch exhibition. I'm so excited when people revealed that they went to this thing. Yes. Daggeringly <laughs> jealous. It was a really interesting experience. David Stratton interviewed him with all people. Um, but he did say that very thing. He said, I was looking at a tree... The tree moved, and I thought, oh, moving image. Bam! Thanks, <laughs> then David. He, then he directed a movie. And literally the whole audience, everyone there was like, <gasps> there was just like this huge round of applause. It was amazing. <laughs> anyway. Cool. So let's move on to part 10. So this is the shortest episode so far, one of the shortest ones, at only 53 minutes. And we open with, first of all, Laura's golden face in the ball floating <gasps> the down. Golden orb. Golden orb. Yep. And then we do we properly open on Richard Horn, yeah. everyone's favourite piece of shit. Yeah, in a, in a car that's a literal, a literal piece of shit almost, like made up of other things, which I'm sure is very intentional that he's like broken and this car is made up of other bits of cars. No, extraordinarily broken. Everything that is happening here is very, very broken. Yes, in fact, um, future guest of the podcast, sound expert Jessica Pinney, just said 10 minutes into this, it's just an asshole parade. And she was really accurate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was nothing it is, isn't it? but just a succession Who of... Who is a good... Uh, apart from Dougie. Yeah. And Harry yeah. Dean. Well, no, but... Oh, yeah, 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 totally, totally. So we begin with Richard having an argument with Miriam, See, I knew this wasn't going to go well. We did. You you called it. Nothing nice happens to nice ladies in Twin Peaks, particularly nice ladies that know stuff. Yeah, true. So this is done in a really interesting way where his reflection on the the door of the caravan is actually stronger than her face behind it. Yes, I did notice that. That It's very bobbish, isn't it? Very bobbish, yes. Mm. It's another big thing about doors. Um, So he cracks his neck when he finds out that that she's mailed this letter and and made a call. Who's mailing letters, by the way? Why isn't anyone using email? Mm, I feel point. like that would have been a far more effective ploy. Uh, yeah, she doesn't DM, remember. why didn't he just DM him? Like, yeah. She may well be off like, grid. You know, WhatsApp Sheriff Truman, you know. We know he uses Skype. Yeah, he true. He does use That was one of my favourite moments so far. <laughs> that Skype comment. He was like, yeah, hold on. I'll saddle up in the Skype. It's so good. So good. It was, it was beautiful. Anywho. Um, but any she, does, she says she mails a letter to Truman, doesn't specify which one. 
But then the letter that we see later on is says Twin Peaks <gasps> Sheriff's Department. Yes, but did I, I, I don't know if this is going too far ahead, but did you notice that the Miriam that is is in the top corner of the letter envelope, it's a different Miriam yeah. to the one that is credited in the end credits. We get oh. Miriam Hodges. Yeah. There's then- Miriam Hodges and then there's Miriam Sullivan. Who's oh, actually played by the actress before p- performing Miriam in the show? Mm. Da, 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 so yeah, are there two Miriams? Chad so, got his Miriams mixed up. Quite possible. Quite possible. God, Multitude of Miriams. <laughs> Maleficent Miriams. Multitude of yeah. Miriams. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Do Do you think Miriam is dead? She's uh, she's breathing. She was breathing, but was I breathing. but I feel like the indication that the oven is open and, and on the and the place and the is can- filling with gas. But the window's been smashed. I don't think it's going to be able to achieve a point. I know this may be too much science for Twin Peaks, I don't know, but there, there is excessive <laughs> ventilation in this caravan. Which there, I, there, there is quite a bit like, look, I'd, I would love it if Miriam gets out, but I feel like, particularly because this scene is all about what you don't see, the violence is only intimated and then the aftermath shown, not the actual act itself, yeah. which I actually appreciated at this point because I feel like this attack on Miriam is so much more effective than so much of the violence that we've seen previously. Like I think I've complained before that a, a couple of the murders that, that have occurred rec- in, in recent episodes haven't really connected with me and haven't really made me feel anything because they just seem gratuitous yes, for the sake yeah. of being gratuitous. Whereas this is, this really hits you. This really makes you realise, one, how far gone Richard is as a person. Like he's... Oh, yeah. He's no messing around. He's no messing around and he's horrendous and he's clearly massively fucked up in so many different ways. And particularly because, you know, Miriam represents such an innocent, sunny aspect that has been sorely lacking in a lot of the yeah. show. So, yeah, the, the the fact that she is attacked here is, is really horrifying and really emotionally distressing in a way that I think mirrors far more the original series mm. and the way violence was treated yeah, there, death particularly against yeah. women. So, no, I, I'm with you, Hayley. I think she's she's not coming back. Mortal mm. Miriam met her maker. Oh, yeah. so much alliteration this episode. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Richard then makes a call to Chad to intercept the letter. Um, Chad, Chad tries to leverage the situation Chad. and it's no surprise. I, God, I hate Chad. <laughs> I hate Chad so much. I still hate Chad more than Richard, I think. Really? Yeah, Chad is That's just funny. like, Chad is such well, a disgusting mediocrity. <laughs> I, he is. It's funny mm-hmm. because I had this moment when like he's eating that moment where he's eating lunch in the um, boardroom last episode. The microwavable lunches. Yes, and they're like, Chad, get out. And I was, I just like, I felt, oh, Chad doesn't, he doesn't get on with his, his colleagues. He's sort of, he's a social outcast. I began feeling sorry for Chad, but anyway. Whoa, you're the only person on the planet. No, I've reached the limits of my empathy this episode. (laughs) It lasted a week. Particularly when you know that he's like really fully in cahoots with Richard and you're just kind of like, no, 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 toxic by association, buddy. But he's really not good at subtleties, Chad. Chad is not, I mean, even the postie was looking at him like, (gasps) what are you doing? Exactly, exactly. The fact that the postie and Lucy are immediately suspicious <laughs> of him exactly. and know that something is like, up. Come on, Chad. Yeah, you had one on, job. And you got the wrong Miriam, maybe. maybe. I mean, could he Probably. have stuffed that up any further? <laughs> <laughs> Not if he was trying. Anyway, we're jumping ahead. Yeah, sorry. So it's You're three. a drongo, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> so the fuck you're, you're done, Chad. Oh, hang on. Are, you, are you listening? Are you responding to requests on Twitter for you to swear in a more Australian way? Yes, I am. Thank you. <laughs> so we do take your feedback on board. Truth, yeah. Chad. What the? Truth, Chad. 
You Chad Wazza. Jeez. That, that was, for our international listeners, that was just made up. But we are the only Australian Twin Peaks podcast. As as I, I feel the, we should play this up more. We're also the only one in the Southern Hemisphere, so we can Ooh, pull in some New Zealand references that. if we want to, That's I think. Well, I'm yet to see others. I, yeah, this is not proven. Please, please reach out to us on Twitter if you are also a Southern Hemisphere Twin Peaks podcast. That would be great. Still in Twin Peaks, Carl Rod is playing a song outside the Fat Trout Trailer Park, Red River Valley. Beautiful scene. I wish you could all see my face right now because this was just beatific this yeah, moment. Yeah, it was. <laughs> this, I've, I've just got one quick question um, <gasps> before we move on. The Christmas decorations outside the caravan, is this set at Christmas time or were they a holdover? No, what was this that is, about? I think this is set on September 30. We don't know which year yet, right. but it's within the last few years. So they were just left, they, they leave them out. It's always out. Christmas, yeah. It's always Christmas in Twin Peaks. Hmm, Yeah. <laughs> She, uh, Miriam was very Gilmore Girlsy. I thought. I thought she was a little sliver of Stars Hollow. She was a little bit. She reminded me a bit of um, Melissa McCarthy's yeah, character Suki. in that. Yeah, I thought yeah. so too. Uh, then a red cup is thrown, a very red cup, one mm. of the reddest cups I've ever seen, is thrown through a window and then we get the scene with uh, Stephen and Becky. And then we get the very opposite of what you just described. The camera's right in, in between them as he's screaming and shouting and... Mm. It possibly in a similar sort of way to Richard, also a victim of this huge agitation and panic. It seems to be a, a, like for coming off people who are using sparkle. Yes. I think there's a, there's a sparkle connection there's here between a, this There's drug. definitely there's a lot of drug-fucked men wandering yeah. around Twin Peaks at the moment and metting out their aggression upon women. Yeah, and it's also interesting to see what he's shouting about because immediately you think, oh, this is like Leo. But Leo was never – had this little sus- level of sustained agitation, I think, like we get with, with Richard and Stephen. But he's instead of like saying, you know, you don't keep this place clean, like you, Leo used to say, instead the stresses here are economic, like you barely make minimum wage. What are you even bringing home? You know, And then he starts accusing her of something, I know exactly what you did. Which you know? Yeah, what's that mean? Possibly it's just his paranoia. Maybe there's something that we're just going to find out. I don't know, but but I think yeah, I think we are definitely meant to think about shadows of Shelley and Leo in this scene because obviously Becky is Shelley's daughter, and yeah, I'm so interested. And this this episode comes back to it a lot, and I think it's why I quite enjoyed this episode as a watching experience as a whole because Twin Peaks is all about cycles and things repeating and evil kind of being able to continue unchecked and in mm. new forms mm. that kind of repeat themselves because we, we, we pretend it's all not happening. We, we hide it behind doors. And mm. I, I really love the line that Harry Dean Stanton's character had when the cup flies through the window and disturbs his very beautiful song where he says, it's a fucking nightmare. It's a fucking nightmare. And that's the thing. This show, it's all about the fucking nightmare. Mm-hmm. It's about the fucking nightmare of continued violence that just spirals out of control and it invariably happens to women and weaker people and yeah. it just happens again and again and again and mm. again and mm-hmm. again. From the atomic bomb on, is that, mm. if we link it back to episode eight, is that what he's getting at? I don't know. I'm I'm still sitting with how yeah. I feel about okay. episode eight and whether it is actually essential to my own personal journey and understanding of Twin Peaks. But I think, yeah, there are a lot of echoes in part eight that I think that you could pull into this kind of interpretation of unleashing an evil into the world. And I think that it is... I think it's very telling that the evil that was unleashed by the bomb has a male face. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. definitely. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's interesting as well looking at the drugs that we were talking about in 1991. It was much more about cocaine. It was more about the ego. It was about the 80s. It was about being bigger than yourself. But now it's more about meth. It's more about it's the destruction of communities. Thing. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Mu- yeah. There's a whole different ways yeah. of ways of approaching it. And I think it's, we're getting it, a lot of it's those. It's a lot here. dirtier. It's a lot more uncontrolled. It's a lot more filling itself with an agitated 
cynical violence, mm. violence for the sake of it, just because you can. Yeah, yeah. So moving on from this scene of like quite striking violence between Stephen and Becky, we then get to like lighter scenes of Jacoby and then one of Jerry. Oh, sorry, I should say Jacoby and then Nadine, who gets her first line <gasps> here oh, yes. as well. Nadine. Yeah, and oh. then we finally get to see the, her shop as well. We get to see. The, so the patent did come through. She's got the run, run silent. silent, run drapes <laughs> with a floating golden shovel in the window. That was all I needed, really. Like really? I feel like that this. A, a lot of people have continued to watch Twin Peaks because they love the characters, and like that. This is primarily why I'm here as well. You know, I really love the characters. Some of the other things that come along with the characters, oh, I'm not so interested in. I feel like with some characters, even just getting these glimpses of the fact that they, yeah, they've gone on and they've done things. And yeah, totally. Nadine is a successful businesswoman mm. and she's very happy just sitting there slurping her frosty and listening to Dr. Amp. <laughs> and if that's all I get about Nadine, I'm, I'm so satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay. really satisfied. Yeah. And I feel like that about a couple of the other characters. Some other characters I could get a lot more from. Mm, yeah. David. Same. And I mean, Mark. a lot of. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still wondering where Ed is. Yeah, I'm curious about that because he was featured in the, the yeah, promotional. Exactly, material. he's due. Yeah. And we're over halfway through. Yeah. yeah. What's yeah. There's, there's several faces who still haven't appeared yet. Yeah. yeah. Hashtag which we, Audrey. Which we will come to. <laughs> um, so he's got, I think it's lovely to see Nadine, especially being warm and happy as well. Like, she mm. really enjoys. Mm. She seems around. very settled and she seems very. I don't know. There's a nice air to her mm, where I, she seems a lot yeah. more calm. I I want to be. I aspire to that level of calm that Nadine was exuding <laughs> in that scene. Um. So following scene, we get the sheriff's office. Chad walks in and stands by a counter next to a plate of donuts, and then makes some really benign small talk with Lucy. But then Lucy drops a really really big clue. I think is to some things we've been talking about earlier. So first of all, she says, "What are you doing up here, Chad?" Which like makes remember we've seen the two very very different uh, versions of the sheriff station, and then he talks about this beautiful day, and then Lucy says one time Andy was even thinking that the clock had stopped, and we realised that we didn't even know what time it was, and it seemed like forever. And she's wearing a wristwatch and two pocket watches around her neck. Wow! So there's this big time thing going on. <laughs> in case we weren't wondering about it enough already, <laughs> and of course Chad goes to intercept the letter in a very clumsy and obvious fashion. It's interesting that we, again we get um, like the camera showing us something that we really want to see and like the date we were talking about at the end of the previous episode, we, there's like multiple ways of looking at it, this thing that you're meant to be paying attention to. So we're not sure if, like it, obviously it was done quite clumsily, but we don't know if Lucy saw it or if Lucy's going to think that he put the letter in his shirt or if he's going to, she counted how many letters there were and there was going to be one fewer one on a, on a counter. Also something to notice, um, one of the other envelopes was addressed to a Gary Hashimoto, who's the name of a minor character from X-Files. Oh, oh, there you go. Thanks, internet. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we get the two different Miriam names as well, and of course, in that scene. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, this, the thing that I found really perversely satisfying in this scene was the fact that when Chad goes to talk to Lucy, and you can feel like he feels he's making fun of her by saying, like, oh, I bet that you and yeah. Andy just, like, wake uh, up every morning uh, and, uh, you know, and he thinks he's being really, like, horrible and snide about her life. But then, honestly, like, Lucy and Andy are the happiest characters in this entire show. Totally. <laughs> yeah, and it just earmarks the deficiencies of Chad. <laughs> yeah. Even what more a so. What a mm. dick. What a passive-aggressive <laughs> dick. Yeah. Um, Chad then messages Richard Dunn in a great... <laughs> some of the biggest font you've ever seen on a, on a photo. <laughs> this is a key interest of mine, as anyone who listens to Cultural Capital would know, texting on screen. And I think... 
yeah, lynches. It's very funny watching the various permutations, mm. especially of yeah. technology in the show. <laughs> then we we cut back to Richard, who then arrives at um, Sylvia and Johnny Horn's house, which is in a gated community. So he's kind of announced by the guard over an intercom as um, your grandson is coming. He loves his intercoms, doesn't he, Lynch? Mm. Oh, the old disembodied voice. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised, given the problems that the Horn family clearly have with Richard, that the door uh, that that the gatekeeper hasn't previously been given instructions not to let Richard in. Yeah. I would have thought that would be possible. I would have thought that would have been like clear boundary laying. <laughs> yeah, not allowed, I'm, grandson Richard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm guessing maybe this is more a more recent example of his behaviour. Perhaps he was just disgusting and vile away from the family home before. But then maybe Sylvia's mothering instincts are just very very strong because, we're, as we see, um, one of her other charges is not doing so well. Um, and so we get Johnny Horn looking at this bear. Now, we could do an entire podcast just on this bear alone and the oh. symbolism therein. Please, this monster teddy. Can you please unpack the teddy bear for me? Okay, I'll give it a crack. So okay. the bear has a plastic globe for a head, which is very reminiscent of another globe that we've seen recently. Oh. So we have a golden globe, and this one has a golden... Yes. It looks almost like the inside of a chocolate wrapper or something stretched. So there's, then there's some blue tack, and then there's four teeth stuck into this blue tack. And these two eyes are drawn slightly um, asymmetrical. Yeah. yeah. And then it has a flashing light inside it and it's repeating the phrase, hello, Johnny, how are you today? Yes. So there were, okay, so this thing is very ugly, very, very Lynchian, but also quite reminiscent of Laura in a very kind of dark, weird way, which plays into some theories that people have had that Johnny's illness is actually partly because he accidentally accessed the Black Lodge when he was a child. Because in his history, he pushed down the pushed stairs. Pushed down five stairs. Stairs by Audrey when he was nine. But he was like this when he was six. So something happened to him in his childhood. Then Jacoby um, mentions that this he wasn't born this way. This is something that happened to him. So this is, again, another thing where we're looking about the nature of illness and evil. Is like, are you born with it? Does it is it uh, yeah, environmentally? Right. Is it because of drugs? Is it because of mistreatment or poor uh, medical treatment? Um, is there a connection with Dougie? There's all sorts of ways. It's very interesting that we brought Johnny back at all because Johnny was such a tiny character in the first in the first two seasons. He only had a couple, a few scenes. But we is know it actually the same actor. Playing no, we've him. had three different actors playing Johnny Horn now. Yeah. But he also had a very very strong connection with Laura, who would calm him down by reading him Peter Pan. And so there's a really big role, like you know, a big strong connection that was never really explored between these two characters. I think there's, he's mentioned in the diary, but again, not not a great deal. So anyway, so possibly, and I was very glad to be wrong from the last episode. I thought Johnny had died. Very glad that he's not. He's just severely injured. But also, it's kind of a bizarre thing to see him in this situation. I'm, mm. I'm imagining this is like very poor way to treat somebody unless you're getting medical, emergency medical attention in the next few minutes or something. If you need to restrain somebody this badly. Anyway, so we've got the, we've got this looping um, phrase. Hello, Johnny. How are you today? Then we have the music from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Mantovani. Mm. Yeah, cool. okay. very strange. Um, so this is Johnny's obviously this is an example of Arrested Development with the, his mouth wide shut as well. Um, and then uh, Richard Horn arrives into this scene and starts acting in an exceedingly violent way that's reminding a lot of people of Clockwork Orange. Yeah. What did you make of this scene given its difference to the first act of violence that Richard Yeah, it's weird up? in that obviously, yeah, it, it is very different from the previous acts of violence that we've seen. But it is still a continuation of this episode's fixation on the variety of ways in which violence appears in domestic environments and who it is targeted towards. Mm. And the fact that it is more graphic, it kind of almost seemed like a milder, inverted commas, milder, because, you know, no violence is mild, version of when we see Maddie murdered in the original series of that extremely domesticated 
space, you know, like they've, they're in the hallway and the dining room for the most part of it. And it's that shock of seeing very familiar, cozy, mm. domesticated spheres all of a sudden become ruptured with something very horrific. Totally. And, and the if I recall correctly, the front door's left open. Mm. The outside world is, like, just there and visible within that scene of mm. art. So you're always conscious of mm. the world outside that mm. zone, I guess. You're yeah. kind of waiting for maybe someone outside to see what is happening within this private sphere and do something about it. But, of course, that's they not what ends up happening. They yeah. never do. They and never actually do. this... This whole idea of outside and inside is very interesting, particularly in the excerpts in like previous episodes where Doug is driving around that housing estate or whatever, and there's like those hired goons with the guns going out, and then they blow up the car and like all of that, and then you know broad daylight, and then like the kid runs into like her, his home, and like his mum's like almost overdosed uh, in the like living room. Like, yeah, it's really interesting theme that he keeps returning to. Mm. Also, I thought the choking was really, really quite viscerally confronting mm. in that scene. I think it is because, yeah, it's this this horrific image of, you know, a very strong young man essentially attacking mm. an elderly woman who is his own grandmother. How was that revelation for everyone? Did everyone just sit there just going, oh, God, I hope the worst theory isn't about to become... Yeah, that was that was uh, on my mind. But then I was straight away like, no, there is actually a pre... We, or later in this, we do see that people who are thought to be mentally, mentally incapacitated are capable of sex and reproduction. This is true. So, this is also the thought that I had. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, right. yeah, I mean, it was already a likely thing, but this, I don't think it's a 100% thing. Yeah. I, I think the unfortunate thing is, yeah, whoever Richard has been spawned from, I think it's probably been a unfortunate situation yeah. all around. Yeah, I think that's likely too. Uh, so Richard meters out this extraordinary violence on Sylvia, then steals the family silver. Among many other things, which I thought was They're like... They're very odd things to steal. Yeah, I guess know? it was whatever was in the safe. It shows that it doesn't have... He, he's not exactly someone who's operating with a lot of forethought. No, no. And, and he's, sort of th- you know, he's saying, finally, I'm going to leave town as well. So I'm surprised to learn that Twin Peaks has a gated community. It's not... It kind of goes against a lot of the things that we're standing for. Uh, yeah. That's interesting, actually. And particularly as, like, previous episodes this season, as they're branched out of Twin Peaks, have, like, set up gated communities and these kinds of communities in, like, opposition to our idea of what Twin Peaks is. So it's Mm. interesting that that's now sort of collapsing, that binary. Yeah. 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 It's kind of another example of how we see how much the town has changed and whether the Twin Peaks that we're familiar with even really exists anymore. And the TV, the era, you you can just extrapolate so many things this type of television that it stands for the time that it stands for i've seen have you seen have you guys been talking about this idea that twin peaks was gentrified since oh. the last uh, I saw, we I saw haven't someone, yet but we could i saw someone tweeting i remember who was tweeting about this and it was like um yeah it's really interesting to see how like these richer people or like yuppies and families have moved in and oh yeah looking at the people who were standing around the car accident yes exactly yeah. exactly that's a key I, I think we spoke example. a little bit at in terms of the roadhouse and how yeah exactly in the they, they have an extraordinarily an extraordinary gig booker there I, and how and, they and, uh, and it, book out that yeah. uh, venue week after week yeah I and it seems like it's that. almost become this weird like satellite city yeah, yeah. For, for somewhere like Seattle or Portland yeah, which totally. is very Indian hipster heavy yeah but <laughs> the population on the town sign is still the same 
so I don't know. But maybe there's how do we know that this is not local mismanagement? Exactly. <laughs> well, it's a very good point. Well, yeah. Yeah. City Hall is just like snowed under with debts and can't afford to change the sign. <laughs> a lot of crime. <laughs> There is a lot of crime in this town, isn't it? This yes. Yet yeah, Chad has time for a donut. <clears throat> anyway, Ben talks to Sylvia on the phone and she tells him about the theft and he's immediately concerned about Johnny, but less about her. Um, and so he refuses to send her any more money. Um, Do we feel like Ben and Sylvia are actually separated? Well, or divorced in some way? I don't know. I feel like they're separated. I feel yeah, like they're separated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because totally. he, he still wears his wedding ring, but it's very clear from this conversation that one, she's she doesn't have much respect for him like mm. she, she never really did i think and i totally understand it from her original series perspective so yeah it's curious that this perhaps they stay stayed together for the sake of johnny to to take care of him but otherwise maybe that's their only yeah well it seems like ben is trying to be good well was trying to be good until the end of this sentence yeah beverly do you want to have dinner with me old dogs die hard andy oh, yes. i've been saying it the yeah, entire you, time you and yeah. steph were both like no i, I don't believe in that. his redemption yeah. and i was like no 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 come yeah. on <laughs> and you guys were right yeah so the whole saucy dog ben horn <laughs> and that's all it took was somebody asking for money mm. yeah um, then we leave, <laughs> we, we leave, we'll leave the um, roadhouse until the end, but we'll, we'll move to Las Vegas and we get a shot with uh, Candy chasing a fly um, in, the, in, in the office of uh, the, one of the Mitchum, Rodney Mitchum. Um, what did you guys make of this introduction, this scene? There was a bunch oh, of people wow. saying maybe she was, was she walking backwards, she was moving in a kind of little-ish oh. kind of way. I feel like this may be reading too much into it. I but. agree. Um, I, I like... Purely, okay, purely on my on the sense of watching it, I thought thought the moment outplayed its welcome until that like burst of activity right at the end, and I was like, oh, I see what you're doing here, Lynch. It was a really great, really well sort of choreographed scene, um, and I loved how we didn't see the fly; we only heard it buzzing around. But what is going on with her? Why is she acting so strangely? Drugs. Really? Okay. Mm. Yeah, that was my feeling. But and and also just like when you connect it with later scenes where she's crying in the corner and she's she re- overreact to Yeah, I mean. she's really quite strung out in a yeah. way, like simultaneously strung out and spacey. Yes. And it yeah. seems like this this one moment where she's inadvertently, you know, essentially hit him has kind of put her in this state of just almost terror like she's almost crying out of terror in a way and the fact that she at at the end of that scene she kind of just gasps out you know how will you ever love me after what i did after what i did and that's that's very red flaggy for me oh that's someone who's been in a relationship that has involved some form of violence that's a reaction that you would have right okay because i got a different reaction from that i thought that she was being a master manipulator and there is some, oh. very, well, you know, I think this is a really great way of still staying, like having some sort of power in this scenario where clearly these are very bad dudes and we've seen them be really violent in the past, but they have this strange protective thing for Candy. Um, yeah. They, they, they refuse to fire her because she has nowhere to go. Yeah, she kind of about? she kind of does this thing so much, this whole how can you ever love me, like I might, you know, she obviously seems to be in great fear, but I think it's a really, really, like it's a master story because they keep giving her responsibilities even when she's, like, you know, exhibiting drug-induced behaviour. Yeah. I mean, I would love it if it turned out it was a turnaround the showgirls were actually secretly running the whole thing. Like, <laughs> I would personally love that. I'm just not... Just from the way storylines in Twin Peaks tends to go, yep. I'm not overly confident. I'd love it to happen. I am, yeah. yeah. I, I am really 
confused. I don't know. What's um, I thought it was hilarious that scene where they ask her to go get the insurance guy and then she's like, <laughs> she just won't take him back and she's there like telling some sort of story that we don't hear. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there was good. There was comedy. There was. I, I thought he successfully mined some comedy out of her character and those interactions as well. Yeah, yeah. And Jim Belushi, in, interesting one. Yeah, he I is. Mm. He's, he's another of those odd castings where you were just it's kind of like. It's such an eccentric really? cast, isn't but it? But it actually works. It's uh, totally. Yeah. I, I really like him in this. Mm. It's funny. Well, yeah, though, we could talk about the casting for hours. It's <laughs> oh so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. They get the, the Mitchum brothers get the news of Ike on the TV. They get to see Dougie and there's yes, a whole I bunch of... Yes, I love that. I love the TV plans. news scene. Well, first we get the weather, which is, becomes apparently important later when Candy uses it as either an excuse or literally, literally was talking about the weather to the Anthony Sinclair on the casino floor. Yes, very interesting. So then they kind of do this weird sort of high five or fist bump thing and they decide that they can call off the hit and now... We get this really great scene following that where we, we get to glue the Anthony Sinclair thing together from the Lucky Seven insurance company where Dougie's working to the, these hitmen yes. via Mr. Todd, who's the, instructs him to then, like uh, Anthony Sinclair, to then become this uh, communicator about how they can pin everything on Dougie. If Dougie is killed and then they get this insurance scam, they've managed to cover their tracks, uh, they can convince the casino and the Mitchum brothers that he's the source of all their problems, which he does in a sort of really, really, cl- like, again, really kind of clumsy way when he has that encounter with them in the in the, uh, uh, the vision booth, I guess that you could call it. Yeah, so, so he just, like, lays all of this exposition <laughs> out, essentially, doesn't he, in one monologue. It's beautiful, He yeah. says, okay, you do this, 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 this is, this is, this is what's happening. He's the bad guy, guys. Yeah. He's the bad guy. Go get him. <laughs> and they're like, and then they turf him out, don't they? Yes, yes, that was great. It was good to see Mr. Todd again, I thought, and I liked how um, Anthony Sinclair crossed the floor. He get, Like the way Lynch, you know, there's films people walking across rooms and corridors. Yeah, I love how he talks to him like a dog. Like, don't sit down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I asked you here because you're a creative individual. <laughs> yeah, creative Do you recall my business rivals and bitter enemies, Mr. The Mitchum Brothers? Everyone's up to date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> five seconds, you know what's happening. There are 217 people to get your head around, but you can work out what's happening here. Exposition. <laughs> Sometimes helpful. Yes. Yeah, well, in this show, yes. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> Particularly for those like, like, yeah, I mean, some of us don't follow all of the endless amazing theories that are out there. So that kind of stuff is genuinely helpful to a guy like me who watches every week, reads like one or two recaps and that's about it. Yeah, which is great. This is why I'm really glad you're on. Yeah, well, there's really interesting... I find that how people engage with the TV show to different degrees is really interesting. And it is a bit of a Rorschach test in a way... You know, you can get a lot out. You can get so much you can get out of it. You know, if you're only wanting narrative stuff, you can get a lot out of it. If you're looking at it at a formal level and forget it and don't even care about narrative, you can get a lot out of it too, which is what, I mean, all David Lynch is like, really. It's what I find really interesting about Twin Peaks. I mm. mean, this is, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but the thing I loved about watching Mulholland Drive for the very first time when I was like 13 or 14 was how scared I was and I had no idea why. Like, I just could not logically work out why. And I think you can watch Twin Peaks and have that, like, immediate visceral reaction and have no conscious idea of why or what's going on. And it doesn't particularly matter. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Or it does in different ways. I don't know. It's interesting. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and to be able to put that into a soap opera... Is why we're all here. Exactly. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed, Abby. So yeah, the Mission Brothers uh, watch that insurance fuck Anthony on the screen. <laughs> that insurance fuck. 
yeah, so that was kind of cool. And then, yeah, Anthony has his great Mr. Mitchum, Mr. Mitchum thing. And then he like he spells it all out for them in very, very clear letters. And they don't seem to be second guessing his particular motivations or unless they're doing it quietly elsewhere. And they remember exactly $30,447,000 is how much he managed to get out of them. Dougie was right with all of his scribbles. Yeah. Sinclair was always fucked. <laughs> <laughs> you have yeah, an well. enemy in Douglas Jones. The showgirls are making the Mitchums uh, bourbon on ice. Which uh, reminded me a bit of like the spike, even though it was a different sort of, sort of bourbon. Yeah, and they have such a weird dynamic. Those two, they were, even the way that that shot was framed, where they're kind of sitting at right angles to I each th- other. Yeah, I was like, it's like the Bergman persona, bloody good call uh, <laughs> shots of these two like casino gangsters mm. getting up <laughs> in each other's grills. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like um, also in Las Vegas, we get Dougie, um, who and we introduced to him being examined by the worst doctor in the world. Now this is like a scene that we were a lot of us were looking forward to. Like, please, if he gets some medical assistance, someone, we might get some explanations. Someone medically assist Dougie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. And then Janie <laughs> takes him to like, who, oh, I don't know if it's he's like, like their Nick family or p- physician or something and they just go to him out of like habit or something. But to, like, <laughs> this guy should have his medical license revoked. <laughs> yeah. He's I mean, just like, oh, have you been working out, Dougie? <laughs> it's, it was appalling. There's no way anybody so should pay bad. for that. Is the American healthcare system really this bad? Like how much yes. do you have to pay for just... Yes, it is. <laughs> You, you could do those those basic tests. Anyway, I mean, well, I have... But, Dougie, I mean, is, aren't we... Haven't we already sort of learnt that this isn't particularly different behaviour for Dougie that we're seeing? No. Like, doesn't he... Isn't he often like this? Has, it or, been, has that been hinted? I, I, kind of hinted, but I feel like how everyone has kind of reacted to him now, except for maybe apart from Janie, who I think has kind of settled into a routine where she's used to just dealing with Dougie's weirdness and Dougie's problems. So she's just seeing it as like, a, I don't know, a different kind, I suppose, and maybe lasting longer mm. than she's used to. But yeah, you kind of get the suspicion like, you know, like the people at his workplace were pretty weirded out. Like even if they weren't going out of their way to help him, like you could definitely register with them. They were just kind of like, this really isn't right. Yeah. Well, the society in general, we're very recalcitrant to get involved with each other. So mm. I have trained as a naturopath. I'd practiced for a little while. So I have some sort of medical knowledge and even I, have trouble getting over this scene. So there was no mini mental, there was no referral to a neurologist. And it's interesting to see the way that um, Lynch obviously sees these doctors as being purely about the body, purely physical. Mm. There was not even any hint of him, the fact that he was barely barely verbal. Yeah, I think it's very telling that they immediately fixate on the fact that Dougie has lost weight and that that is the most the important entire... thing and that that's, yeah. oh, well, this is great. There's nothing wrong with him yeah, yeah. if he's, he's lost a bunch of weight. He's lost weight in a in a good, in a a healthy way or something, I think mm. um, yeah, she so, says. So she this entire yeah, scene just existed for Janie to f- see the body of the man that she'd been dressing for the last week. Mm. Yeah, this was, this was also the thing that made me go, oh, okay, really. <laughs> Much as I appreciate being able to see how cut Kyle is. Yeah. Dude is cut. Dude is cut. <laughs> It is great. Yeah. I enjoyed it thoroughly from a personally, you know, just ginormous trash bag perspective. I look, (laughs) Naomi Watts' eyes mirrored my eyes. Naomi Watts was us all. Yes, she was. Oh my God, her sex eyes in this was so great. I I thought, I love those shots of her. kind of lingering where she was just like it was very um someone on twitter uh, i think juxtaposed it with pictures of nicole kidman in something that she was in recently and doing very good bedroom eyes and she's like it's no wonder they're besties yeah they've got the same bedroom eyes <laughs> oh man and yeah so to be able to lead into that scene we got red shoes red shoes first thing we saw red shoes being taken shoes, off but Flat, red shoes yeah. cool 
Um, and then, yeah, it was amazing. The, the birthday cake, oh, birthday cake, is it the, maybe it's just a piece of chocolate cake, sorry. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah he loved that chocolate cake. He did. He was very, I really enjoyed the, the physical acting here of yeah. eating it. Yes. And, ki- and you kind of really realise how disconnected Dougie is from everything a lot of the time. Like, he's just very focused on very particular things and it tends not to be people. He tends to not be fixated on people. Yeah, you're right. He tends it's to objects, be fixated on objects. The sheriff's badge or like sheriff's the cake. Sheriff's badge, cake, the yeah, stethoscope. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so what do you make of the sex scene that followed this? Uh, <laughs> if, you have anything po- if you have anything positive about it, say it now because I'm okay. going to party poop on everything. I'm okay. really, really sorry. Okay. But okay. Get, no. get your positives out of the way now. I was confounded by it. I, I thought it was... I mean, I found it absurd and funny... But also, weirdly, I mean, was he consenting to that? This is the question. This was my big question. Mm. And I don't know. I felt so distressed during this scene. I think I felt more distressed about it than anything else that happened in the episode, which is saying mm. something because a lot of fucked up shit happened in this episode. But yeah, I was sitting there very discomforted that one, this is a situation that is a very grey situation, what's going on here. I'd, I spoke to some friends after I watched it who have some experience with say dementia patients or people with difficulties confirming consent or or what they may want and there's a lot a lot of different arguments to be had within this realm but there is a line of thinking which is if a patient before they became ill had a long-standing relationship that involved sex and their partner can still initiate things with them and they seem positive and at least make physical motions that they want to be involved in that sort of act you know you you can kind of go on with that sort of thing but it's so complicated this situation because Janie still thinks that Dougie is Dougie that Mm. this is her husband who she's been with for years and so from her perspective she's engaging in sex with Dougie and it's a long-standing sexual relationship that they have had and that everything is okay from her perspective but of course we the audience know that Dougie isn't Dougie and that's where we get to the realm of well even though he does look like he's extremely enjoying himself we're still in an area of can Coop actually consent to what is happening to him? Considering we've seen him so disengaged from people essentially since he re-emerged back into the world. Yeah, I think there are definitely concerns, but I'm also we don't know what sex was like for them beforehand. Exactly, that's also a grey. Yeah, so it may, this may have been typical for them. We don't know. Um, secondly, we've seen him act instinctually before, like when Ike had the gun, he was able to suddenly use these fine motor skills and these other things he doesn't seem to exhibit other times. So we know that he's going to drive a car at some point. We've seen this image as part of the promotional material. So it's again, it's kind of it's a really tricky one. It is really and tricky. The, the, I think it's I think it's good that it's tricky and that it's gotten a lot of people thinking about these sort of things. The thing that really that I think drove the fact that made me upset about it was the fact that the scene was clearly played for humor, mm. and that was upsetting. Yeah, okay. for me personally. Okay. What really brought the weirdness of it home to me was at the end when she's like, Dougie, I love you. And he's just like, love you. Or something like he, he couldn't even express he it. He just parrots yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was like a reminder of, oh, 
So I don't know, but yeah, yeah. it was. I mean, it was played. Well, it was played for laughs. Well, it was played for awkwardness. I mean, that was why we got Sunny Jim cut into that scene, and why he, she was oh, saying yeah, Dougie. Yeah. That's she kept saying Are his you name sure over it's and awkwardness because I saw it as like blatant white out humor mm, yeah like I, like it almost plays like something that you would have seen like in an american pie movie well yeah yeah that's interesting no i well i didn't find it funny i just thought it was really weird like really awkward like the whole hand the flapping flapping arms and all that sort of stuff yeah. i could see if other people would find it hilarious yeah. some people find and that that's disturbing the thing, like, I, other people. like i have noticed the the primary reaction that i've seen online is people yeah thinking it's hilarious yeah yeah the whole Janie gives two rides lol thing yeah yeah mm. like there's been a lot of memes yeah about and, this. Will, and i'm just like look have have fun with it. It's <laughs> fine, but yeah, there's 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 definitely perspectives on this where it's just kind of like, oh, okay, maybe. Well, I think one uh, maybe it's not so. One coupling right. that we can all be on the same page about is happening over in South Dakota. Talbot. Oh yes, that happened. Cole yes. and Tammy watch uh, Albert and Constance having the a, show's a, most outrageous bisexual is at it again. <laughs> I know it's beautiful. The conversation is lively around the dinner table. Ah. Just, just generally. I don't, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to confuse you like that. And <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Sorry. I was just like. I was very confused. I was like, what? Well, I don't know. well it is. It's weird. There's a dinner table and they're, they're mm. clearly having a great time. And the way that Cole and Tammy are watching them, almost like these parents or something, like seeing this beautiful little relationship begin to blossom. Yeah, that was cute. I love how much David Lynch we're getting. I are like physically, <laughs> yeah. like Lynch, the man. Just, yes. His face, Cole. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then we get this really interesting scene inside room one, one, two, three, where um, Gordon Cole is sketching Cole, a yes. dog with trees or antlers for ears. Yeah, I, yeah. There's a weird deer, and then there's like this elongated hand trying to reach for the deer, and I was just like, "Thanks for that, Lynch." Well, yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure about the animal, but then the people have been saying this is exactly the same sort of creature as the angriest dog in the world, a cartoon that Lynch draw has drawn in the past and has animated in the past. And so this is this ongoing thing called the angriest dog in the world, and it looks—it <laughs> doesn't have those antler ears, but it, the shape of the dog is the same thing. But what? sorry, I'm just having an episode over the fact that Lynch has a cartoon character called the angriest dog in the world. Yeah, anyway, has, anyway, he, anyway, focus. Sorry, ah, yeah, he has ah. several, but anyway, this um, this dog so has exhibiting his art in Twin Peaks. Yeah, we, there's also we had we had a torn so off so indulgent. We had, we, had a, we had a torn off corner of a page on that as well. Indulgent, <laughs> never. Da- David Lynch. Doing art, exhibiting the art in David Lynch's TV show. I love it. <laughs> I do, genuinely. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, th- I feel like it's another thing like the cow jumped over the moon that just isn't meant to mean anything. I mean, people are already looking at going, there's seven dots on the dog. There's like possibly oh God, an eighth fuck, one on the other. Like, so, so, yeah, of course, of course we are. Um, Bless you and your endeavours. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> See, it's, it, this is an exa- a classic example of what I'm talking about. Like, I just can't. I really struggle to think like that, but I wish I wish I could because there's this <laughs> oh, whole look, universe of people stuff. People get so much enjoyment out it's of it, amazing. and I'm just like, if that's the way you want to read the show, just like fucking big ups to you. Thanks. Yeah. Um. So right next to the sketch pad is a red rectangular box with two lights on one end. Is it sitting there? It looks like quite like like possibly a sort of communication signaling device or something mm, like that. I'm not okay. really sure, but also, da da da. And then he he has a knock on the door. Goes to the door. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Why so, is Laura appearing to Cole? This is that this is, is a thing, yeah. So I feel like it's a sort of a portent because we're about to have this really important information revealed. But also this this shot of Laura, which is actually taken from Firewalk with me when she comes to the door of Donna Hayward's house, going, mm-hmm. "You're my best friend, aren't you?" Straight after she's realised that her father is probably Bob. So this is like one of the most emotional. Well, actually, there's a lot of emotional scenes of Firewalk with me, but it's one of the the most beautiful ones because it's this trauma. But she is almost immediately comforted by by Donna. 
we also get the voice of Sarah Palmer cut into this as well, where she's shouting Laura, Laura, like, you know, up the stairs. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is done in a sort of distorted way, which is kind of pulled back in the sound mix. But it's, what's fascinating also is that we suddenly get the colour scheme from Firewalk With Me, which is always kind of fairly striking, against the colour scheme now. And the colours just jar so much. There's like this warm, homely sort of most so pastel qualities. Beautifully eye-popping. Yeah, ah. and, then, and then against this kind of, you know, really bold digital 16.9 thing that he's doing now. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so that was that was really striking. And then... Cole looks very surprised. Albert looks very confused because he's just standing Because he's just standing at the door, just waiting. <laughs> it was yeah, underneath like, the apparition. Hello? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> staring directly into it. <laughs> so oh. I'm not sure if Cole is just meant to be like switched on and paying attention to now because he's just had this visit from Laura. Because he doesn't know about the lodges and the world, but he hasn't accessed them as far as we know. So Albert comes in, um, instructs Gordon to turn up his hearing aid. I think it was up. Secret times, secret times, yep. yep. And then reads from the report. Well, he has his folders there and he talks about Diane received this text on her phone this morning. Yes. Around the dinner right. table, the conversation is lively. Mm. Now that came in after Cooper escaped, so they immediately think it's to do with Cooper. It pinged off a cell tower in Philly, so he thought it was one of her boyfriends. <gasps> Get it, Diane. Nice little insight into <laughs> Diane's social life. But no, it was actually come from Mexico. Mexico, <gasps> yes. Dun, dun, dun. Did she respond? She sent this heavily encrypted message. I can only imagine what classes for heavily encrypted messages in the world of Lynch and Cross. <laughs> I would love to know. Do they, do they write it's it backwards? It's in a different font. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's lowercase. Uh, they have Hastings. He's got to take them to the site. So what do we think? Is, what, so immediately they think... Is this a site in South Dakota that people have been trying to find? Or someone did. Someone yeah. on the interwebs did people, find it. Yeah. Uh, the coordinates that were on Bill Hastings' website... Ping, if you pinged them into Google, it zeroed in on a particular place in South Dakota, in South Dakota. and someone went and looked at it Yeah, to find out, a local. Oh. Did they find anything? No. They okay. Well, they found a buried um, oh. tuna can that didn't have anything right. in it. I think there was nothing. That had, uh, had a bullet hole in it. Yeah, they, yeah there's nothing of note. Yeah, but they did note that they saw some car tyre tracks through the grassland that looked fresh. So they were like, well, if, some, if there was something there, someone could have beat me to it and just hasn't said anything. Hmm. This is da, 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 real this life Twin Peaks creepy, mysteries. It's real. Yeah, I'm yeah. singing a lot this episode. Sorry, guys. I'm just really excited. No, don't, no, no it's like Twin Peaks is bursting out into <gasps> real life South Dakota. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be in our lives and in your bedroom. I sincerely hope not. <laughs> I really hope not. <laughs> um, so immediately, um, Albert and Cole think that this is evidence of Diane aligning herself with Doppelcoop. So his response is to keep her close. Mm-hmm. But all, I'm not rushing to that conclusion quite no. yet. I feel like there's a Philip Jeffries in between in this scenario and he may well be in Mexico. I mean, look, I would be really personally happy from my perspective of last week floating the idea that perhaps Diane is working in cahoots <laughs> with Doppelcoop in some way because I will be fucking right, people, and I will gloat about it. <laughs> but, you know... From another perspective, I I would like it if Diane was on the side of good. Yes. So, because well, um, I love Diane. Well, we Diane all do. Great. We all do. Yeah. Diane is yeah. great. Um, but um, also, Cole feels that the conclusive piece of evidence he has is that when he hugged her, something felt wrong. And if you go back to that scene, and I remember mentioning on the podcast, he barely hugs her. He pats her back, and then his arms are limp by his side because he's kind of confused about what to do because this didn't seem like something had happened before. So I'm not sure if he's misremembering it. If I'm interpreting a pat on the back as I should be interpreting that as a hug. Yeah. But then I also think about how much twin. Peaks predicates feeling over anything when mm. it comes to yeah. investigating stuff. Mm. It's true. Mm. Yeah. God, I don't know. I, I'm still difficile. thinking. 
I'm still thinking there's a Jeffries that we haven't hasn't been this is yet to play out some scenes. And then we get a really strange shot of um, Tammy walking slow motion down a corridor towards a door that This is really feeding Stephanie and I's theory that she's a snake. Did yeah. you see the way she moved? She was oh. like a slithery viper. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also she uh, the do- did you see the door handle shift? No. Okay, if you go back and watch the scene, you'll see that there is a, a pixelation and the handle jumps. Uh, uh, this so, is why everyone was yelling about doors on Twitter. Yeah, so that's part of it. So it could just be uh, some sort of thing where they wanted to cover up this, the room. I saw were... the door talk. I was very confused. Right. <laughs> I'm confuddled by a lot of the talk. <laughs> yeah, I think it might have just been a... Sh- I try, but then sometimes it's just like, oh. <laughs> um, so the electric car reader, card reader blurs. So maybe they were just using a different door for that particular cutaway True. and they wanted to blur it so they did, they could, people didn't go, oh, look, it's a different number or something. I don't know. But anyway, she walks in. Does her standing, walking, incapable of being stationary. Oh, my... Yes, I noticed that too. I was like, why doesn't she stop moving in this scene? Not any scene. Maybe she is She never stops moving. She's very fidgety. She's very, like, just constantly almost trying to, like, shift and morph herself into something This was the first time I had noticed it. It was really quiet. It's such an intriguing I'm doing it. This is really bad. I'm really hoping that it's, like, actual, like, proper direction. Yeah. I'm just being like, just keep doing this. I did love how divisive she is. I'm sure it is. Well, apparently he's very... I mean, you would know this more than me, but I I was reading an interview with um, my new favourite actor, Jim Belushi, today, (laughs) and he said he threw out an improv line uh, during one of the scenes and Lynch, like, cuts and he gets his, like, megaphone out and he's like, Mr Belushi, do I need you to come see me in the principal's office? So, (laughs) and he was like, no, no, okay, I'm fine. So I think he has a lot of attention to this detail. So if she's wriggling, there's a reason. Yeah. And God, does she wriggle. Oh my she God, does. She certainly does, yeah. So much. Um, so she shows him the photo of the penthouse murders in New York City and then the photo of Doppelcoop standing with a man who I looks a bit that like... New York City room. Yeah, so now we, we've got this connection between him and the glass yes. box. Possible anonymous billionaire, probably. Standing with a scientist of some sort who presumably was some sort of person wearing a white lab coat, standing awkwardly, who built this thing for him. And probably paid really, really well for it. Um, but just before we leave Diane, I think it's worth just pointing out how across FBI stuff she was, and she probably wouldn't realise that this text would have been intercepted. She possibly would be wanting. Yeah, I think she knows to what be she's working doing. on her. I think she's very agenda. canny, and I think the people who are finding the messages are the exact people that she wants to. find Yeah, messages. I think so too. Yeah, yeah, because she's like we did mention last time. Like she's being so def- she couldn't be any more defensive or protective if she wanted to be. And um, just before we leave, have you seen those Star Wars photos of Laura Dern? Oh, Amazing. my God, yes. And her hair. Yes. Love it. Yes. 100% here. I can't wait. Laura Dern firing glasses. Yes. I wonder if Diane fires a gun. I don't know. We'll see. Oh, yeah. She would know how to, I'm sure. She would. I'm sure she would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so moving to the closing scenes now, Log Lady talks to Hawk. Mm. I didn't think we again. were going to get Log Lady again. This is such a special gift. I don't think anyone thought we were. This was brilliant. And particularly the lines she got. The whole thing is beautiful. Like It's like a poem. Mm. Um, electricity is humming, you hear it in the mountains and rivers, you see it dance among the seas and stars and glowing around the moon, but in these days the glow is dying. What mm. will be in the darkness that remains? And then she goes and gives him a bit, a few clues about the Trumans that we imagine he was probably already across. He's a pretty good judge of character, Hawk. But they reminded them that they are your brothers and the others, the good ones who have been with you, presumably talking about Auntie and Lucy, mm. who haven't really seen him be around Maybe Bobby. Else. Yeah, good yeah. call. Yeah, he's been around. Now Possibly the s- Chad. 
No, no chads. No chads. There are no chads in the futurist vision no, of Log Lady. Log Lady has much time for that. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Now the circle is almost complete. Watch and listen to the dream of time and space. It all comes out now flowing like a river. Which is like a really good premonition for part 11. Like a river. No. I like that. And then yeah. that which is and is not. Hawk Laura is the one. Of course she is. Yeah, it's good to be reminded of that. It, it is good to be reminded that Laura is the one. She's the entire point. She is the point. She is the point. Even, yeah, even if we're... Well, no, not even with. I was going to say even if we're going back to atomic bombs, but it's not even if. It's She is the one. She's part she of that too. She is the one. She is the central pivot. She is around which everything spins. Yeah, and now she's a source of all good. And possibly, depending on when you think that the, oh, I don't know, I'm going to say it again, the cosmic uterus saxophone released the ball, Laura Ball, whether that was in the 40s, 50s or today, or whether that even matters. Because it seems like, you know, she's sent back. So we may, we, are, we all thought we were going to see her in some sort of way this episode, particularly with this episode title being Laura is the one. But now it feels like, well, maybe it's going to be next time. Because we know that the next episode is going to be screened at Comic-Con. So it's not going to be is a. It? Is it? It's not going to be another part no, ten. Well, we all it's going to be know something. That, Andy. Bi- sorry. Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah, there's a big thing there. A whole, bu- whole bunch of the cast and crew are there. There's all these merch you're not going to get anywhere else that people oh, are desperately cool. trying to get other people to buy for them. But yeah, so this is presumably going to be a really big app. There's going to be some big reveal. It's going to be, I don't know, some form of Cooper's reassembling, or it's going to be Audrey, or it's going to be Laura, or something like that. And also, we know it's 60 minutes, so it's going to be seven minutes longer than this episode. Because 13.4%, I measured it, of this episode is the next song that we're about to hear, No Stars. That's quite a lot of time. It's quite a lot of time. and All entirely warranted. Yeah, I would say that it's it's an amazing song. Um, You will hear in a bit of bonus content that's going to be released later this week an interview with co-writer John Neff, who wrote the song together with David Lynch, who talks about the creation of that Song and I'll do a bit of a spoiler now. It was written sixteen years ago, and so she's actually lip syncing to a recording that she made when she was a lot younger. And it's quite obviously, I think everybody would have noticed, not quite matched. Well, this is if we remember her from Mulholland Drive. She specialises in lip syncing. She's very good at that sort of thing. Yeah, true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I thoroughly enjoyed this song. It was some good ambient. Dream pop shit, yeah, which and is right co- up my alley. You just alley. said co-written by David Lynch. Yes. Mm. So oh. yes, I imagine he probably wrote the lyrics Correct. because the lyrics are extremely prescient. I think, particularly when you partner it with the previous scene with the log lady, where she's essentially talking about we exist in this world that is dying. We exist in this world that is kind of yeah. slipping the through our fingers. The electricity is dying. The electricity is dying. Everything's slipping away. Mm-hmm. You have to get the good ones around you. And then there's these beautiful lines in this song, like the one that I repeated over and over again so I could write it down was, my dream is to go to that place. You know the one where it all began. Isn't this the journey we are all on, friends? Yeah. And it's kind of amazing that he pulled that out because that was a song that he wrote in 2001. He did write the lyrics and John Neff wrote the music. And he pulled that out of an unreleased album by a band that he had, or this duo that he had, the two together, this called Blue Bob. This is like weird obsession, isn't it? This, mm. That very, that idea. Mm. I'm just thinking, you mentioned 2001 and the singer, and I'm thinking Malholm Drive, very similar theme. Yeah. Of just like trying to get back Lost to Eden, something going back that to the now doesn't Eden, exist. That you can't, it's gone. And that you can't. It's you like can never, it's this ephemeral thing. You can never go back. You can mm. never go back. And I think that's what a lot of Peaks fans have been having 
a frustrating time with with this new season because it is very different and we do get yeah, these snatches we do get these snatches of old characters that we loved and maybe we're not spending as much time with them as we want to. Mm-hmm. But if the um, original show is that Eden, you can mm, never go back. You can never go back. You can never return because everything changes and time happens. Yeah, it'll do that. And evil spills forth and grows. <laughs> well, this is all very depressing. Soz. <laughs> it's... <laughs> To, to, to get, bring it back to something flippant, how amazing was Rebecca Del Rio's dress with the yes. black and white zigzags? It was all very waiting room. Yeah, yeah. Was excellent. That was great. Thoroughly no, well themed. Yeah, I think this is the uh, musical performance I have enjoyed equally along with uh, the Chromatics performance. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love the so Chromatics performance too. And, and on a more recent example of You Can Never Go Back, we're over halfway through the series. We are. It's all going to be over in a few weeks-ish. Two months. september September, which yeah. is just going to come around tomorrow, like tomorrow. Mm. And we'll never be able to go back, you guys. We'll never be able to go back. It's so weird to be conscious of the fact that you'll never be able to go back whilst you were moving through the thing, which you will be lamenting never having been able to go back to. I hope that made sense. It did. Yeah, I'm going to be really wondering how the fandom in general is going to be yeah, after to everything here? is screened, considering everyone spent 25 years waiting for it to come back and now it's back. And we're going to get to the end of it. And, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know whether it's going to be the sort of thing where Showtime's going to be like, here, David, have a bundle of money. Keep going. And whether he would agree to that or not. But I think we all have to behave like, you know, this this is it. Yeah. This is it. Well, it was 23 years of not expecting it to come back, of presuming that you were going to be left with... You'd never be able to come back. Yeah, Mm. yeah. And then, you know, two years of extreme excitement knowing that Ah! it was was actually in the offing. Yeah. But then we're and now we're here. And we're here, but we haven't but, gone but, back. But but it's it's coming, Anders. The end is coming. Yes. Yeah, but before then, um, we get all sorts of exciting, great things. We do. And so we do. I think it's what like I love is, is the way that... <laughs> we're all just feeling maudlin. <laughs> <laughs> is it we keep uh, having our heads full of these questions when we watch them, like, when's Audrey coming back? Maybe it's the next scene. Um, is, is Cooper going to wake up? And so the next time you watch it, the second time you watch the show, you're not ha- you don't have those questions because no, you're just letting you're it wash over you, and it's almost like another know. show. It's beautiful. Absolutely, it's a really great. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually very excited to watch it when it's all extant. Like I think in some ways, dissecting these things, you know, piece by piece, when we don't know what comes after them, is like a really weird exercise. It's a very enjoyable exercise, but it's very weird on a fundamental level. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. Completely agreed. Last week I was lucky enough to get to speak with Australian actor Eamon Farron, who plays Richard Horn in the show. In the interview, Eamon uses the term sides to describe scenes when I spoke to him, and I hadn't heard that terminology before, but apparently it's fairly common among yeah. actors and directors. He spoke to me from LA, and I began by asking him how he was cast. Yeah, um, I, was doing a, I was doing a play at the Sydney City Company um, at the time with Kate Blanchett and Sid Roxburgh. It was called The Present, and we were in our Sydney run, because we took it to New York at the start of... Uh, the end of last year and the start of this year but uh, we were in our Sydney run and it was the end of 2015 I think and uh, I was doing like a matinee on a Wednesday and I went outside um, between shows and there was a message on my phone from my agent saying that uh, David had got in touch and if I could get there and wanted to do it there was a role in the new Twin Peaks for me and I was like ah I think yes we will do that (laughs) Um, so I, uh, um, it was a tight turnaround. It was, I had a couple of weeks to get everything organized and get there, but, um, obviously you do everything you can when you get that kind of call. So it was pretty yeah. special. 
Had he seen that you had changed? Do you know why he's got in touch? Yeah, we actually never talked about it. Um, we, but I assume yes, because I did a film with his daughter Jennifer called Chained, and um, I assume that he saw that. And uh, and yeah, it's pretty. It was a nice compliment to know that if he did see that, and um, and I stayed in his mind that uh, you know that's pretty good. It's pretty one of the highest compliments you can get paid. I think that's how it happened, but we never really did talk about it. I must ask him next time I see him. <laughs> okay. Um, so, how much of the script were you shown? I was sent my sides and obviously with the nature of the project nothing else and even then not all of my sides so it was pretty I mean the first couple of conversations was just we have a role for you we'd like to talk to you about it when we got it all organized I jumped on the phone with David and uh we had a quick chat and uh he I said he said do we have any questions and I said I have like a million questions uh first of all can you tell me what I'm playing and he said no buddy just uh jump on a plane and come to this forest and make a cool thing with some cool people. And uh, that was about it. <laughs> then I got sent a couple of sides. But uh, it, it, was, it was like, it was a pretty mental, gnarly ride. But uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. I closed the show on a Saturday night and I arrived in, in Seattle um, on a Sunday and on the next Sunday and, uh, and we started shooting. So I, I knew nothing and I went into it sort of really super fresh and, that was that was sort of the perfect way to do it, I think, given the project, you know. So, could you even celebrate the news that you had been cast, or was it there's so much? Are you kidding? I couldn't tell anyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, so, I, I sat on it for for 18 months so until the cast list was announced, and even then, because it was 200 people, you know, I, I some, only the people that knew me would uh, would know that uh, I was in it because they know my name. So it, yeah. was a, it was a total privilege to not have to talk about it, you know? <laughs> so were you already familiar with the first two seasons? I, I'd only seen the first four episodes of the first season um, because in drama school, when I was in drama school, we watched the first four episodes. So in that two weeks that I had to prepare to go to America, I, I, I feverishly watched the first two seasons uh, sort of all at once as as quickly as I could which was a ride in itself, you know? <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, it sure is. Like, obviously, you and everyone associated with the show, um, even the guy who runs the antique shop across the road from the Double R Diner, I find out, has signed an NDA. Is this, is this, <laughs> is this NDA different to other NDAs? Uh, no, not really. I, I, it's an NDA that, that comes with... It's an NDA. All NDAs must be respected, uh, you know, and, and mm. adhered to, and, and I understand why. But this, this NDA... Not on paper, but uh, just because of the nature of the project and who you're working with. I think David's made it very clear from the beginning that it's very important that no one knows anything. And not because, not for any other reason that I think that's the way that this show should be viewed and experienced. It's one of those shows that is, is ahead of you most of the time. And I think that's a pretty special experience for the viewer and for, and for everyone involved. And so... Once you realise that as someone performing in it or working on it, or I think there's a respect that comes with, when you realise that sort of aspect. I think the respect comes with you. You want to protect that piece of art and and the potency of that story by protecting that. So every NDA is, is important, but this one I think everyone felt like they had an ownership over that why there was an NDA in place, and it's fun to have an NDA. You know, you don't have to talk about it and. I wanted to save everything for myself too. I'm glad that no one told me anything else because I only know my stuff. So I get to watch this cool show every week just like everyone else. Right, and that's what you're doing at the moment? You're like sitting yeah, there? Yeah, sure. 
I just yeah, yeah. down on Sunday nights, and I am like, I wonder if I'll be in this one, and be not, um, and, and then and then once and that that's the selfish actor reaction. But then I start watching it, and I kind of just like get absorbed by this crazy, beautiful artistic piece of television art, I guess. And I love it. Yeah, I love, it. And I love how I love how confused I am by the end of every episode. I guess the confusion is born out of like wanting to know more and wanting to piece it together. And I like the fact that David crafts something that just gives you little slices and then says, just you have to come to that piece of writing and, and, and television and experience it, but also engage with it as opposed to letting it wash over you. And I, I, that's what I love about the TV show in general, apart from being involved. I think that's, yeah. that's a kind of exciting piece of TV. Definitely. Um, how was working with Lynch different to other directors with whom you've worked? Um, David is David is all at once. Uh, David is so uh, across his vision and, and what he needs and what he wants. I think David's one of those directors that does a lot of his work in the casting. I think I think that by the time you come up on set, he, he has a feeling for who you are as an actor and what he needs out of you for the story. And I think if you, as long as you bring yourself. And, and what what he's seen in you to that that experience, I think you get what you need. As far as on set experience with him, he's super generous and relaxed and and smart and funny, and he creates a, a really great culture on set of everyone wanting to be there. And, and a lot of directors that I've worked with have done that. I think the difference between David and 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 a lot of other people, not just directors but artistic people, is that he really is attuned to his vision completely and um, at the same time because he's committed to that vision and, and knows it so inside out he can really welcome in everyone into the to the making process but right. he's also always in control of it so I think that's as an actor to walk in there and uh, and feel that kind of trust from him but also have the trust in him that he knows absolutely where everything is going yeah um, okay that's that's a really cool experience Right. Um, did you get a shiver of excitement when you heard the giant mention Richard in the opening part of the first episode? Well, see, I wouldn't be so. I, you know, I wouldn't assume nothing in this show. Yeah. So, okay. you know, like I, I, I heard the name Richard, but I, I'm not sure. You know, who knows? Yeah, okay. I, 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 if I was across it, then maybe. But I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go assuming anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a safe bet. Um, so Richard gets a pretty phenomenal introduction. Um, I thought it was one of the most memorable of the show so far. Did you get any specific guidance about playing Richard Horn? Uh, no, not not a lot. I mean, I, I realised very quickly that this is a character that, that has been well thought out by David and Mark. And I knew we had slight conversations, small conversations about what we need. We sort of played each scene for what it was and we took every day by every day. So I never worked in sort of an, an overarching, because basically because I didn't know where it was going most of the time. I, we, we worked scene by scene and, and in that scene in particular, we, we would, Dave and I were just talking about those throwbacks to the 50s and, and, and those ideas of like a noir 50s vibe for him and for the scene. And obviously what happens in that scene is, is, is extreme. But we like uh, on the day we were just playing with the idea, and we only ever worked really on on one or two takes for each scene. So it's very it's very organic working with David, and and there was an ex I had the experience of walking in, and because we had some chats, very small chats about about character, but there was a sort of trust from him in me, and obviously in me for him, 
And so we just played out each scene as it came. So there was no uh, didactic sort of discussion about what we needed, but uh, it always just sort of came pretty organically, which is so rewarding as an actor. And, and also with the crew around, like they've worked with him so much that it, it really did feel like a culture of, um, of playfulness, but always under the umbrella of David knowing exactly where it was going the whole time. Right. So were you able to actually do any research for the role? Or was it all pretty quick? It was very quick. I, I, I spoke to David on the phone very quickly before I got onto the plane to come to Seattle, and he just said, get over here safe and let's go. And then when I arrived on set, we had um, more conversations. We talked about the theatre and we talked about, like, wine and we talked about other stuff, and then <laughs> and then we got going. So there was no research. I mean, I guess my own personal research was watching the show, uh, the first two seasons. But having said that, I think because this is a 25 years later, this is... And 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 it was shot in in a very long movie format. Uh, it's, it's in some ways it's different to the first two series. So, in a yeah. way, I came to it pretty fresh, and I think that's what David wanted for us actors and also for everyone watching it. Mm, okay. So, has your life changed at all since parts five and six aired? Have you been recognised, or is your agent getting a lot more calls now? <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, I, I think there's definitely been a bit of recognition and. Uh, that's really fun. It's really, I mean, I've always been, I've always loved the idea of being in this thing and, and it's been really lovely to talk to. The Twin, Twin Peaks fan base is very committed and very knowledgeable and super excited about it. And so every time I get recognised or, or ask questions, it's, it's great because we talk about the show and we talk about Richard in a very general sense. And that's, a, you know, if you get a kick out of that because it means that it's, you're in something that means something to people and that's the best and I'm yeah. in LA at the moment so it's a town that watches TV and so it's it's been a, it's been really fun to sort of like <laughs> engage with those people that that kind of dig it you know great have you been have you been following the theories and conversations around the show as well I've heard through different people what what people are sort of speculating and stuff and I've got my own speculations about the, all the other stuff that oh, I've been watching but uh, I've, I've heard some stuff about Richard um, yeah, and you know, I love theories. I love the mystery. I think it's wicked. <laughs> I've never read it, but you know, maybe it will. Maybe it won't. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I think you've got a lifetime invitation to the Twin Peaks Festival in Seattle if you ever want to take it up. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. if, if they'll have me, I mean, you know, some people, some people don't like Richard. Oh, <laughs> some people are a little bit wary of old Richard. <laughs> yeah, his progression even over two two episodes has been amazing. Like to go from being so vile to so pathetic, almost in that scene with Bosses I Getty. Well, those are your words. I'm deeply offended yes. by those no. words. Well, that's the genius. I think, like you know, that's what I enjoyed about those first two eps. That you know, there is uh, the first ep is, is there's some pretty horrific stuff, and then the second ep, yeah, he gets thrown into a different, whole different context, and I think that's the beauty of. What Lynch does with 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 character is he, he he really kind of lets you have a bit of carrot and then he subverts or or changes or pivots the whole thing and I think that as a viewer I think that's why his characters endure over film and TV because they they pivot and they're surprising and they're like humans and I think that's what's fun to play about those people. Do you have actually your own theories about Richard's parentage? Um. <laughs> I, I have as many theories um, as there are out there. I have I have a theory, but I, I don't want to speak on it. I want I want to I want to see it play out because what I've learned from Lynch is that 
things sometimes aren't what they seem, and I love that. And so I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Well, best of luck with that, Dora and Mohawk and the other projects you've got coming up. It's a real privilege to talk to you. Thank you, dude. Um, and no I appreciate it. It was really fun. Thanks so much. And that was Eamon Farron, who you can hear is not at all like the character that he portrays on Twin Peaks The Return. What a lovely young man. Yeah, very friendly. Um, now we come to the final section of uh, today's podcast, and that is Theory Fish, where we take a theory and we rank it either fish in a percolator, it stinks, or I caught a trout in my pyjamas, it's fresh. Or if you want to, you can sit in the middle with a green butt skunk lure. So today's Theory Fish comes from Reddit user Leviticus Reeves, and it takes a little while to explain, so I'll kick into it. Okay, I'm sitting back. Lynch is unwriting the parts of Twin Peaks he had nothing to do with. Beginning after Laura's murder and fully after Leland's death, sorry, Leland's death, the Black Lodge enveloped Twin Peaks. Since then, the town has been inhabited by lodge spirits and some manufactured creatures replacing characters we've always knew alongside real humans trapped in dream reality. The whole town is being harvested for fear and pleasure. So, over the years, it's become a violent cesspit full of crime and poverty and drugs. But it's also a place where the double R remains inviolably intact where incredible bands play the roadhouse every night and lives are lived between utter objection and euphoric joy. Twin Peaks isn't the only town subsumed into the other reality of dreams and nightmares. Las Vegas has clearly been twisted into surreal madness for years. Perhaps there was another portal in Las Vegas. A portal recently opened up in Buckhorn, and you can see the spirit world encroaching there. The Fat Trout trailer park was like a little outcrop of the world conquered by the spirits. When the lodge took Twin Peaks, it took in the trailer park alongside, which is why the park and even the distinctive electricity pole is now in Twin Peaks. I believe that when Truman and Hawk and Bobby go to Jack Rabbit's palace in the next episode, they're going to step into a portal into the real world. Lynch is returning us to Twin Peaks, but he wants to override everything that happened since he left the show by placing it in a dream reality. Nah. It's a bit fish, a bit percolator. Yeah, stinky fish. No, Mm. that trout is firmly ensconced in my pyjama pants. (laughs) Oh. Haley, I that is a fantastic theory. <laughs> I love it. It gets to the metatextual heart of what David Lynch loves to do, as we've been talking about. This idea you can't go back, but you can override things. I, yeah, I like it. I'm I'm with you, Reddit user. Wow. Okay. No, I, I yeah. See, see, I'm the opposite in that you know if we are going with the theory of you can't. You can't repeat the past. You can't recreate the past. You then can't ride roughshod over it and pretend that it didn't happen or that something else is there instead. That's my feel. Mm, okay, because there already has been some rewriting. Like there's a long, long list of um, discrepancies mm-hmm. between canon and the Secret History of Twin Peaks book. Mm-hmm. Um, I can put the link to that if people are interested. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole lot of things like Norma has a different mother. She was born at a different time. There's things that just don't add up time-wise at all. There's lots of the exa- these examples. Maybe instead, instead of a dream, dream world, there is just Lynch's Twin Peaks and there is Mark Frost's Twin Peaks... And never the twain shall meet. Yes, and when they do meet, it's sort of in this crazy collision. That is what the end product that, that we is get. the show. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it is interesting that we, we always knew that there was potential for portals to open up. We got a hint of that in Fire Walk with Me, but mm. now that we're seeing this, like a big a lot of plot is, is focused on locations. So, mm. like we have these coordinates that are very, very key. That yes. are, they're packed, the only thing that can save Briggs you know, to be able to get out from when he was in the lodge earlier. Or there's, you know, the, the stuff playing out in Vegas. Now we get Mexico. We always knew there was something happening with Philip Jeffries in South America. 
And we know that there's going to be some scenes. Actually, no, I shouldn't talk about that. This may not be um, stuff that I should be talking about. Anyway, so there's definitely like <laughs> lots of geographical portals. I don't know. I'm kind of a bit um, green butt skunk. I think there are some real things I really like about this, but I don't believe that next episode we're going to see a real Twin Peaks. Yeah. Through Jack Rabbit's palace. Yes. Apologies once more for being distressingly linear. Oh no 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 no! no. I love this. This is very key. <laughs> This is what Mark Frost was saying in the interview that, of course, all of our listeners listen to, was that he was talking about, you know, people shouldn't get hung up on these sort of details. It's a fictional world. There's definitely, there's always room for malleability. It's always yes. room for rereading it. And, and that's an interesting thing to remember is, yeah, there's like this really interesting, you know, production history, how that influences what we end up seeing. Um, and to what extent is that conscious or planned? To what extent does that matter? But it would be really cool if the show started incorporating that messy production history mm. in the form of wormholes into other places. And well, I suppose it's kind of doing that already. And that well, you know, in way, we we, we do have those weird spiritual realms and the lodge and the glass and, box and the glass a, box. Yeah, as a way between. So it's already been established that. There are several worlds at play yeah. here. I'm just not quite sure how many more of those are sandwiched into the real world, inverted mm. commas, um, space that we've already been traversing yeah. Yeah. through. Okay. And there's so, I mean, this is the really interesting thing about Twin Peaks for me is, yeah, as, as I said before, the different levels that we we read the show and how, I mean, even, I mean, the way I, so I come at it less in terms of Twin Peaks fanatic who tracks everything but definitely as a Lynch fan and seeing actors like Mr Winkies or seeing Naomi Watts wearing her pink cardigan that she wears in Mulholland Drive-ish all of that stuff is like playing to this idea of this real world context to the show which in which really does inform what gets filmed what gets put up on the screen you know the fact that Naomi Watts is starring in the show or Laura Dern or whoever you know people actors who was used before so this yeah this idea that you know this context Lynch's history really seriously informs what we end up watching I think is really interesting I think I'm far more interested in the idea that Twin Peaks is just part of a greater Lynch universe. This? And the Lynch every, multiverse. The Lynch multiverse and everything's just being folded. Is that a thing? Well, sure actually, is. in the interview I did with John Neff, mm. which we'll, you, I don't want to spoil because I don't want people to listen to it, he expands on this <laughs> from an insider perspective. Cool. Yeah, he spent a lot of time doing things with uh, David Lynch so, and he talks about it on there. So now that he's on your podcast, does that mean we are part of the Lynch Yeah, I think you are. Multiverse? You're, you're, you're no, my no. disembodied Sorry. voice is part of the Lynch <laughs> multiverse. No, no, no. That's, this is, it means very different thing for Hayley than it does for us. Aww. You're going to be subject to all manner of... Shit. <laughs> the evil that men do. You're it's gonna... not going to work out well for me, guys. <laughs> Jeez. No, no, no. Well, the influence Lynch has on us as viewers, I mm. mean... I mean, you can think about it in many different ways, but we are. We, it's it's Lynch's world and we're living in it. Lynch's <laughs> multiverse, who knows? Whether you like it or not. Um, there, there was one other very much shorter theory that I, I could run past you as a, for, a, for a bonus yeah. theory fish, and that is uh, Doppel Cooper is the anonymous billionaire who has set up the box to capture Good Cooper so far. We have floated this before. We have floated this before, very, very but early. there is an extra bit. Ho, ho. Tracy, oh, who was the girl who came in with the coffee... <gasps> yes, I love Tracy. ...was deployed her. by Diane to distract the guy <gasps> watching the box, which drew the experiment into the box, who was there to kill Cooper, but missed Cooper because of this distraction, killed the couple. <gasps> 
fish in my pants. Thus saving fish Good Cooper and allowing pants. him to progress I, to yes. the purple zone. I'm 100% on this. This sounds amazing. That's a great theory. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant theory too. I also think that Diane could be working with Denise, who's the one <gasps> character we've seen who doesn't, doesn't trust Cole. Yes. So I wouldn't be surprised if yes. they, those two are teaming up to do yes. their own take on Doppelcoop. Denise is above Cole. Had to approve Cole's. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mo. Sure. So I wouldn't be surprised because Denise is also across the blue rose. We think Diane definitely is, and so she's clearly. I feel like there's definitely an outer layer of this investigation going on. Mm-hmm. That's those two teams together. Cool. I just want ladies sorting shit out. That's that's <laughs> my general mo with anything. If ladies are sorting shit out and working it out, then I'm just like, mm. I'm here. Great. Well, yes, I'm. I'm. Very, I find that very pajamaish theory. Very yeah, fresh. Same. Cool. 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 Well, that's us. Thank you very much for making it to the end of uh, the, our discussion of part 10. And thank you very much, Anders, for stopping by. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was an absolute joy, Anders. Yes, thank it was. You for coming. Um, if people uh, like the way that you approach things and they want to get involved with you on social media, you can get involved with me on social media. Oh, my um, God. Go on steady with anyone. You oh. can find me at Anders Furs. Yes, please do slip into his DMs. Please, they're open, open DMs. <laughs> and we're at TPC Season 3, as you may well know, on Facebook and Twitter. And you can also hit us up at season 3 podcast at gmail.com if you want to have a longer... Convo. Convo, yeah. Have nice. a bill. 